What's up, Fail Nation? Today we've got a great episode for you that I recorded actually a couple months ago, but I just was waiting until the new year once I got rolling with everything again, being a little bit more consistent. So today we've got an awesome interview with Tate Stock, who was on Shark Tank. He runs the company Chirp, and it's just an awesome interview, and he's an awesome guy. I learned a lot from him personally, and I know that you guys are going to as well. And if you guys like this interview, then I would really appreciate it if you go onto Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google or wherever you listen and click subscribe and give us a rating and a review. That really helps spread the word about this podcast. So without further ado, here's my interview with Tate Stock. So I went out and I bought $400 in sewer pipe, $50 in yoga mat from like TJ Maxx and started selling these things on Amazon and we turned that $400 into $12,000 in two weeks. What is up everyone? I'm Kyle and I am the host and founder of the Freedom to Fail podcast and Fail Nation, a community where failing while pursuing our dreams is a positive and taking uncertain chances is celebrated. This podcast is for those who have a dream of starting a business or doing something they've always dreamed of but have been held back by their fears. Our purpose is to share the unsuccessful stories of successful people so that you can learn how to take the first steps towards achieving your dreams. You deserve to live a life full of freedom and free of fear. Let's do this. Okay, what's up, Fail Nation? I'm here with Tate Stock. How are you doing, Tate? Good, how are you? Good. First off, you're the owner of a company called Chirp. For our listeners out there, do you want to just give a brief little rundown about what kind of company you have and what that is? Yeah. So Chirp is a back pain relief company. Uh, We mainly sell Chirp wheels, kind of like a foam roller, but they vary in uh, diameter. So imagine a foam roller that's five inches wide, so it fits in between your shoulder blades and you roll out on it. But um, the different diameters that they vary in a six inch, 10 inch, and 12 inch. So you have from deep tissue all the way to more of a gentle pressure, all based around back pain relief. Okay. So what got you into the back pain market? That is a great question. So we um, started in the yoga market with a product called a chirp, or sorry, a product called a yoga wheel. With a semester left in college, my aunt had one in her living room. And I looked it up on Amazon and the Amazon algorithm was finishing my sentence. So I knew that I knew that people were searching for it, but it wasn't being sold on Amazon. So I went out and I bought $400 in sewer pipe, $50 in yoga mat from like TJ Maxx and started selling these things on Amazon. And we turned that $400 into $12,000 in two weeks. So I knew that, hey, this is like an opportunity, right? People are searching for these yoga wheels on Amazon. So I kept doing that uh, for the first two years of the business. And then uh, after receiving a ton of customer feedback and working with some health professionals, we uh, found that back pain was the core benefit of the product. So that's how I kind of got into the back pain market. I'm not a yogi. I'm not a chiropractor. I studied econ, economics in college. But it's more just finding the opportunity at the beginning and then pivoting to the right market. How long ago was it that you started it? Five years ago, about five years ago, I started the company. Mm -hmm. So five years now, and you guys have had insane amounts of growth because you guys were (laughs) just on Shark Tank. It actually aired, what was that, like two weeks ago now or something like that? Uh Yeah. And you ended up getting a deal with Lori. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So how was that going from just being 
uh, econ student at in college uh-huh. to now being able to partner with one of the biggest sharks on Shark Tank. And not only that, but you came in with asking a valuation that everyone just thought was <laughs> insane. So most of the time, people just get laughed out of that uh-huh. room. What was that like going through that whole experience and then closing a deal with Lori? Oh, man. Shark Tank was intense. So we did. We went in with the highest company valuation in Shark Tank history. And it was you valued it at, was it $36 million? We valued it at $45 million. $45 million. Uh-huh. Okay. And then we exited the tank with a valuation at $36 okay. million. So also, we went in and we came out of the tank with the highest valuation. What really helped in that experience, though, was what they care about are the sales, right? Yeah. Do, do the sales say something? When we had filmed on Shark Tank earlier this year, we had done $12 million in sales so far. Uh, we're on track to do $40 million, and we have really good profit margins. And so they love that. They really didn't have a problem with the valuation, yeah. which made the whole experience really positive. Um, it was still intense for other reasons, but at least I wasn't getting beaten up because <laughs> I was... Mr. Wonderful yeah. always targets the valuation for sure. Yeah, he, he was totally... <laughs> he was thrilled with our sales and actually ended up putting an offer out there, so... So you said you're on track to doing 40 million, close to 40 million this year. Mm-hmm. We're in 2020, which is COVID pandemic and uh-huh. just insane amounts of unemployment and all these other mm-hmm. sort of issues. Why do you think that people are buying your product at such large levels when they may be struggling financially? That's a great question. There are definitely markets that have benefited from COVID. There are some that have driven businesses out of business. So my heart really does go out to a lot of those businesses struggling. I have buddies that have lost their business because of COVID. Primarily, uh, more retail spaces have really suffered. Um, Why we are able to grow so fast? Now, the last year we had done ten million in sales, so it's not like we jumped from like nothing to forty. But what really drove the sales was just the at-home fitness and stretching market, right? You can't go to your massage therapist. You can't go to your chiropractor. So that was one aspect. Another aspect was the team really coming together and marketing. But a lot of, a lot of people don't know this. We actually pre-sold for four months out of the year. We'd ran out of stock when COVID hit. We ran out of our three-month supply or surplus of inventory in three weeks. So four months out of the year, we were out of stock. So COVID's really benefited the business with sales. Could it have benefited more if we were ready? Yes, we didn't have a crystal ball, but we estimate that we missed out on probably about 16 to $20 million in sales during that time. Still super thrilled, and the, the team is way pumped about the year that we've had and um, more of actually the steady growth. COVID hasn't made a just a huge flash-in-the-pan spike. It's been consistent, so... So do you expect that to continue even after people start going back into workspaces? Great question. Yeah, we do. There are several reasons why. Obviously, the world is shifting to be more at home. I don't don't think anyone thinks that people are going to entirely go back into work. But we've also set up some key relationships to ensure that that, the sales numbers and the growth continues to happen. Uh, Our social platforms and marketing are nowhere nowhere near saturated, and we are just, I think we're just getting rolling. So next year, we're projected to do over $100 That would be, again, another crazy year, but that still does factor in the, hey, what if there's a COVID bump? We're we're really confident in the growth, so we'll we'll see see what happens. People say one thing, and then, well, again, we'll let the sales decide at the end of next year. You never know what's going to happen. So... Obviously, uh, you've had an insane amount of success to this point. How old are you? 
28. 28. Okay. Mm-hmm. So super young still. Have you always been an entrepreneur at heart or where did your entrepreneurial journey begin? Yeah. So I, I grew up in Washington state in more of a farming community, worked on a farm growing up and that instilled a lot of common sense on how to solve a problem. In high school, I did try to start a little t-shirt business. I didn't really sell any. I just made my own clothes. Um, so I guess I did have an entrepreneurial spike. I think there are certain personality traits that can point to that. So yes, I do think that I, I, I'm not very risk adverse. I like knowing the limit or I like finding out what the limit is and pushing that limit. And so my ability to work hard, uh, have some common sense from the farm as well as be willing to take the risk really have helped me be an entrepreneur. So was Chirp your first business that you officially started and launched? Yeah, Chirp was really the first big go. Okay. So that's interesting to me to say that you haven't always been an entrepreneur because usually I find that people, if they're just searching Amazon for the next like opportunity, they're usually people who have an entrepreneurial background, uh-huh. there, especially uh-huh. people that are looking for like convenience sales type of, or like a convenient market to get into sure, there. Sure. So it's it's fascinating to me that you didn't really have that kind of background, but then you just still decided to go for it. And I think that some of it is just the opportunity mindset, right? Yeah. There are so many just living in America is like this is the land of the comeback kid. You can fail and and be the dumbest kid in school, but uh, you can come back and do whatever you want just because the opportunities out there. And so I hadn't been a previous previously been an entrepreneur, but I do think that my mind was always looking for some sort of opportunity. Okay. And I think that was a big key in uh, taking that. And and being willing to go out and buy $400 in sewer pipe and yeah. strap some skateboard wheels to a table saw and roll some pipe through it and, and figure it out as we went. So I want to go into that a little bit because you said that you weren't a yogi, uh-huh. anything like that. Mm-hmm. But yet you've been able to still do this business. Obviously, you've pivoted a little bit there, but it's been like five years now. So how do you keep the passion in your business if it's not something that you personally would have used initially? So my mindset on that is don't be a hippie. A business creates a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. But because you like surfing doesn't mean you have to go start a surfboard business. Uh, because you like national parks doesn't mean you have to go start a national park sticker or hat business, right? Looking back, I don't, I don't think that it, you don't necessarily have to do that as a hobby. Passion comes from other aspects of the business as well. So maybe I don't have back pain or I'm not a yogi, but I am so passionate about the people that work for me. And we have 30 employees now and 60% female. And that is like awesome to me, yeah. right? To have that the different perspectives and girls run the world. Yeah. At least around here. And so looking for uh, and finding those passions in other areas, helping the customer out. We sold over a million chirp wheels. And so finding those uh, passions for helping people, even though you might not do that specific hobby or have that specific pain, that's what drives my day to day and my excitement. Cool. Obviously this is called freedom to fail. So we, have covered a lot of the success (laughs) that you guys have had. And it seems all butterflies and rainbows and all that stuff up to this point. But I know that being an entrepreneur is extremely hard. Obviously, Uh I have my own businesses and stuff too. So it's not all fun and games there. Mm -hmm. So with Chirp, what would you say has been the biggest mistake or failure that you guys have experienced? Okay. We have definitely failed along the way. I've definitely had many 
thousand dollar and hundred thousand dollar mistakes along the way like what so some of the big failures growing one was a success and a failure one of our failures was in manufacturing it was a success because we couldn't have grown as fast as we did when we switched from yoga to back pain if we weren't manufacturing in the u.s but we ended up uh when we switched to back pain that holiday season we were shipping like five thousand units a day and we had 60 people working around the clock in the warehouse. And it was just, for me, it was like a, it was kind of a personnel failure of, yeah, we were growing at this business, but it seemed like we were growing it at all costs. Everyone was safe and fine, but it just, I just know that I could look back and I could have grown the business a lot more smooth. And uh, if I had set up an injection mold machine and had some of the other manufacturing taken care of. Anyway, at the time, the biggest kind of like, maybe this is really close call to failure. Uh, I was in Thailand with my family, and we were getting about 5,000 orders a day, and the website started changing all of the – we had four color options. The website changed them all to the color gray. So boom, all of a sudden we have <laughs> tens of thousands of customers with one color option. And then our little manufacturing plant, the person right next to us in the next warehouse, their warehouse caught on fire while we're in Thailand. So it was like a total, it was a mess, right? We have a warehouse on fire. We got all these wrong orders. And you're over there in Thailand. And I'm in Thailand. <laughs> we're on a sailboat in the middle of the ocean. I have no idea how we even had internet service. I don't think I slept uh, more than three hours a night when I was there. It was a really fun trip, but it was, I think I still have PTSD from it. But then we learned from that, obviously, moving stuff overseas. We moved all of our manufacturing overseas that spring, and things went a lot smoother. So you moved from the U.S. overseas for manufacturing? Uh, yeah, we moved all of our manufacturing to Taiwan. Okay. Uh-huh. And why do you think that made things go a lot smoother? Because usually you hear of people yeah. starting overseas because it's yeah. cheaper and then having the end goal of moving to the U.S. So um, it went a lot better because of our partnerships over there. We found a really good contact to source our product. It also went well because uh, our product was simple. It needed injection molding. It needed EVA uh, padding. We were able to uh, innovate on our current product, make it 100% PVC-free and hold more weight and be lighter as a product. And so, um, But the real key of building the product overseas was the relationship that we set up. I guess that's one thing that I'm always curious about because I don't have a a product-based business or anything, Uh but that's always something that I've wanted to do eventually in the future. How does somebody who wants to get involved in a product-based business create those relationships with manufacturers? Like, where do Mm -hmm. you start Mm -hmm. in that process? Um, The key is, as a young entrepreneur, and you're really just trying to figure out how to do it and solve the problem any way you can. Here, I'll give you a couple insights on how we did this, growing uh, with manufacturing as well as growing the team. A couple hacks that I think are huge in growing our business. So first of all, there's a site called Pangeva, and Pangeva tracks all the containers that come into the U.S. And so what we did is we found the yoga mat supplier that we really liked that was making yoga mats. They had really good quality, and we knew the brand, right, the U.S. brand, but how to find their factory was the real key. So we searched them and did some searching on Pangeva and found out that they were manufacturing in Taiwan out of a certain couple factories. Two weeks later, my wife and I got on a plane, went over there, visited, found those factories. So Pangeva, huge hack. 
Another huge hack that I'll mention, I guess, right now is manpower, right? How do you get the right people on the team Yeah. when you're like, hey, I'm not even paying myself a salary. $14 an hour sounds like a lot, you know? Our hack for that is first, I got a bunch of free interns from BYU. I don't know if they would give them back to me, but I got a bunch of free interns for about four months, and uh, they helped do some of the legwork. None of them really wanted to keep working for free after that, so I think we hired one or two. <laughs> And then the second hack that I found was uh, it's more around people, right? Because you never grow a business by yourself. It's all about the people that can help you out. Um, so the second half, how do I get really talented people here in Utah, but I can't pay their $200,000 a year salary, but I need them, right? They could, they could provide so much for the business. And so I went over to Purple Mattress, which was doing awesome things, and they still are. And I started networking in there, and I started picking up moonlighters, what I call moonlighters, people that work full-time at Purple but would give me a couple hours at nighttime. And I got three of them. I got their videographer, I got one of their marketers, and I got one of their email guys. And they started moonlighting for me. So we were making millions as we were making millions of dollars as a company, and it was just me and a customer service rep and then these three moonlighters. So it was kind of this like rogue little team. But it allowed me to pay them a lot less, pay them more based on performance. They loved it because you know, at one time the the uh, advertiser she was making like $5,000 a day just based on our agreement. So she was like, you know, not making that much money at all at Purple, but she's making us way more. And so those couple hacks, I guess, hacks to get into supply chain, where to find a supplier, and hack to uh, kind of work the system to get some of the right talent on. Nice. Up front. With, without giving up equity, I still own 100% of the company. And uh, some people, this is actually interesting. Maybe I'm going too sidetracked, but I made the Forbes 30 under 30 list for this last year and I went to their little launch party in New York and I'm not kidding every single one of those guys had already sold their business before they started it selling out to venture capital so that's one thing that I would urge if you can in your industry be patient don't sell out too early yes you can get the benefits of some money in some industries you need to grow that fast but a lot of these guys that you know in their company might be worth a million dollars but they already gave up half of it so so I like your idea of finding people to moonlight for you when you approached them, did you just come up with a purely performance-based agreement and just be like, hey, if you help, like you get X amount of our uh-huh. revenue or of our profit or whatever uh-huh. the case may be, or how did you do that? Yeah, so if the video guy, I just paid him to do a video for us, and he was cool with that. The ads person, I wanted to incentivize them. The better we did, the better she did. And so that was uh, more of that relationship. And then the email guy was based on a retainer where I'd pay him so much a month, but it was month to month. So if he wasn't performing, then I didn't have to keep going. I was always um, minimizing the downside. Yeah, you want the talent, but you don't want to promise someone that they're in a a great job in their career if your company's still growing, unless you you actually have the money to pay them. Obviously, that comes back to surrounding yourself with the right kind of people Mm -hmm. that help complement your skill set. I want to go back to the beginning of Chirp. Okay. Just do I want to talk more failures? Yes. I got please. a couple. That's okay. what I was going to say. All right. From the beginning of Chirp, what would you say? I guess even just in general now, what are some of your other big failures? Because now I'm curious. All right. Okay. So um, early on, I gave a piece of the company away to a family member. Equity early on is very touchy subject. It's uh, really easy to do because it's easy to do because people will tell you to do it. A lot of people do it around you as well as you don't really have anything else to pay them with. That really hurt that relationship. I would never get family involved in that way again. 
it's still a tough relationship, even though we had paid out on it. And uh, we think that we treated that more than fairly. But So with that, because you, you said you have 100% of the equity uh-huh. or 97.5 or whatever the case may uh-huh. be after Shark Tank. So did you pay them out? Yeah, we just bought them out. So that family is great. Family might be the only place you can turn to for a little bit of money or for some help. Just make sure to act professionally up front and to make sure that you're not thinking things in your mind, but they're not communicated to that person or written down on paper and agreed upon. Be overly clear about that stuff. Here's another failure. Sometimes that trust bites you in the butt. We've had employees stealing from us. We had employees, one employee stole a patent idea. Oh. We've literally made like tens of millions of dollars from this. He stole the patent idea and gave it to his brother. And then his brother launched a Kickstarter on it. (laughs) I called his brother up, or I think his brother called me up because I... I had found out and I chewed the little brother out and the older brother called me up. I said, I'm going to sue you blind. This is amateur, but whatever. I told him I would sue him blind if he didn't take it down. And he did, which is great. We didn't have to go through any legal stuff. So those were two. With the employee stealing, you always get, I don't know. You want to work around great people. One of the benefits of entrepreneurship is like you literally get to pick the people that you want to work around. You get to pick your friends and your team and you spend a lot of time with them. And so I don't think that it was a failure maybe. Maybe it was just an overextension of trust. So I think that is super crucial. Nobody likes to be micromanaged. Yeah. But at the same time, you still have to have guidelines and structure for people to be able to do their job and perform at a high level. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you guys do here in Chirp to provide that flexibility while still making sure that they are doing what they should be doing. I think you've got to have a system of accountability where you know their goals and they're working towards that. And then you can trust them, right? If everyone knows the company revenue goal and how their job impacts that and what's expected of them, then you can let them go, right? And the right people, you really shouldn't have to have a bunch of job descriptions and all this bureaucratic measures, anti-bureaucratic measures in place Really, if you have the right people, you point them in the right direction, say, hey, this is how much we want to do this year. This is what I expect of you. And you're responsible for reporting back to me on that. The trust and the lack of micromanage is, the, I think, it's the best part of the job. Yeah. I think that's a good point, though, or a good thing that you touched on right there is making sure that they're clear of what is mm-hmm. expected of them. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I am to blame with this a <laughs> lot in my businesses where, and it's like what you mentioned with the whole equity with the family thing, just be overly clear of what is expected between that relationship, whether it be family member to family member investing in someone, whether it be employer to employee or whatever the case may be, just be overly clear of what the expectations are because then they know what exactly you are expecting them to do. Because mm-hmm. I've had so many times where I have trusted employees to do something and then they don't do it. But then I think about it later and I'm pissed at first. But then <laughs> I think about it and I'm like, wait, I never actually trained them or like showed them yeah. or, or told them that this is how I wanted it. Or at and least it wasn't clear at the beginning. Exactly. Right? It wasn't crystal clear of like, hey, this is your job. This is what I expect. Yeah. And it just comes back to oversimplifying things, like making sure mm-hmm. you don't want to have like 20 pages of things that they need to be doing because that's way too much for anybody to make sure that they're doing efficiently. You just want to narrow it down to a few key things, make sure that you're on the same page with where you're going as far as goals are, and then just let them go to work with that. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a super, super crucial point as well. So with Chirp, I want to talk about the growth a little bit. Okay. With a product-based business, a lot of times you hear that people 
I mean, on Shark Tank, all the time you hear that people are going in looking for funding mm-hmm. to fund the inventory because they have a lack of inventory because of all that. So with Chirp, you had extreme amounts of growth in the past five years. How have you been able to maintain those levels of inventory or just not, I guess, outgrow what you could do? This is one of uh, Mark's big questions actually in the tank that didn't air, but um, he asked, so how did you go from $200,000 selling in the yoga market then to the next year do $4 million in the back pay market? And a big key to that inventory success was we were manufacturing ourselves, right? It was a disaster, but we were doing it ourselves and we were making the money we needed to and turning that around and making product right away. That's a plus of having an online business is you don't have these accounts receivable for 30 days or 60 days or right now we're selling with QVC and their terms are 90 days, right? We currently we're waiting on like a million dollars from QVC. Yeah, it'd be great to have. So uh, online business, you can get it right away. With a product-based business though, you really do have to, I've always said that it takes guts to start a business, but it takes balls to grow on. Because just even going into this holiday season, I think we probably invested $8 million in inventory just to prep for the holiday season, right? You hope it goes good and you hope Shark Tank airs well. You actually hope that Shark Tank actually airs and you hope that your ads (laughs) perform. And and so, uh, yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that you got to keep investing in yourself. You got to keep investing in your business. I want to go back a little bit now. Yeah. I guess not back, but just on another side of that with Mm -hmm. investing in the business and just finding the right places to invest in. Mm What has been your growth strategy? Like where have you focused your time and your money in investing in? I've never really focused on, uh, well, now I have a team to do this, but I'm a little bit of a gunslinger. And so I've never focused a crazy ton on making the perfect experience, the perfect packaging. I've really just focused on sales and sales prove themselves and sales solve a lot of problems. If you're getting the sales and you can grow as a company and, and, they make your product and your experience and everything else better. So we invest a lot back into our marketing team. Is it usually just pure digital marketing that you focus in? Uh, yeah, we do. We do a lot of okay. mainly digital marketing. So yeah, that investment, uh, invest in inventory, invest back into what's making you money. You know, you can invest in some fixed costs like a really fancy office or whatever, but that's not going to make you money. You know, a better a better guy running your advertising or a better video asset, right? We've the last video we made was like sixty thousand dollar video, but how much has it made us, you know? And so understanding the value of working capital and uh really until you can make one million to ten million dollars in sales, all you should be focusing on is the sales, is the growth. That's what you should be investing back into is how do I make If I invest $1 in, how do I make $3 back out? Let's just say, for example, one of our listeners out there has Mm -hmm. a business and they're struggling to hit those revenue marks. Uh What advice would you give someone like that to being able to improve their revenue and make the $1 turn into $3 to 10 to 20? There is no worse feeling than struggling as an entrepreneur. It's definitely a roller coaster I still get those moments all the time. Even though they look at the success, it's like, well, wow, we put all this money in. Hopefully we get it out. So I get that feeling. What to do if it's not working out? First of all, you need to assess your market. If it's never really marked worked out and you're selling more of a vitamin than a painkiller, so you're selling something that is maybe maybe a little bit more uh, 
harder to sell, right? If you're selling t-shirts or whatever, and you don't have really good branding, that's something to assess. Make sure that you have the right resources yourself to make the core product actually be able to sell, whether you have the best person on the team or not. Then I would, um, I would as quickly as I could, I would go find three to five people that have seen around the corner from you. And they don't even have to be in the same business vertical as you go interview them and be totally open about your situation Ask them what they've done. How did they get from $100,000 in sales to two hundred, dollars Or maybe it's $10,000 in sales to $50,000 or whatever the, whatever the scale is. Ask them how they did it and then do what they did. Really, it's about having someone else snowplow your path and then hopefully someday you leapfrog them and pass them if they're your competitor. So one big key thing that I know that they'll say is people, right? How do you find that moonlighter that really knows advertising at this stage you know if you're struggling to grow you shouldn't be focused on how do i find an hr person or an accountant or uh, even a person to do creative it's how do i get a how do i get a salesman if you're in here and if you're not a salesman yourself you probably need to learn a little bit on how to be but also find someone that can compliment yeah it's tough i've had a lot of nights not sleeping at all stages of the business just uh just figuring out how to how to grow it, how to make the $3 out of one. So cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I know that's good advice for me. And so obviously our listeners are going to get some value (laughs) from that too. It's very practical for sure. So I want to touch on, you mentioned that the entrepreneurial journey is a roller coaster, a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. Daily too. It's not just like, oh yeah, a couple months I feel good and a couple months I feel bad. For sure. Even today, right? We had this disaster in in the warehouse and it was it literally went from like me yelling at these guys which i really don't do very often but yelling trying to fix this problem at the warehouse then to 10 minutes later getting on the phone and talking with our m&a attorney about the valuation of the company and a super positive kind of fun thing so yeah it's it's a roller coaster daily I just wanted to touch on it a little bit. How do you move forward personally knowing that you can be just smacked in the face on the daily? What do you do to make sure that you're mentally prepared mm-hmm. to take that beating mm-hmm. and not just cower down and give up? You have to have thick skin. You have to have uh, a little bit of a vision. Even if just your vision's till the end of the year of the goals you're trying to hit, you've got to be determined and be willing to take the risk. Even getting on Shark Tank was a risk. It took us hundreds of hours and applications and all sorts of things to get on there, and you never are guaranteed you're actually going to air. And then, boom, you get the benefits of airing, and it's been awesome. So you definitely have to be willing to take a beating. Uh, you've got to be able to sit back and take a, a long bath and uh, think and uh, try something new. And honestly, if you keep going at it, something's going to work, right? If you If you just keep going at it. And maybe it's not the same business, right? People waste their time if it's if they keep. I, I'm not the one to tell you if you're in the right market or not or whatever, because I never thought starting out with sewer pipe we'd be doing what we're doing right now. But keep on keeping on. <laughs> you mentioned that you just keep. You have to be ready to take a beating. Mm-hmm. Has there been any times in this journey from when you started where you have thought maybe I'm not ready or willing to get beat up anymore? Have there been any times where you've been close to just being like, all right, this isn't for me? <laughs> Throwing in the towel? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think early on, we really, I was often rejected because I was young and I didn't come across as someone experienced in business because I, I honestly wasn't. So I don't blame him. I probably wouldn't have lended me some money or 
trusted me with a PO or whatever it is. So some of those times were tough that you're thinking about throwing it in. It's always been uh, more than the money for me, though. It's it's uh, Business is a really fun game where you get the opportunity to give back to the employees that you're working for. You're able to give back to your customer and providing a great product. And so just the satisfaction of playing that game, I think, has always kept me from giving up. Always the thrill of uh, pushing the limits and seeing how far you can stretch this thing uh, has always kept me going. So just to, to wrap up here a little bit, I just want to go into some of what I call my lightning round. So it's just a few like rapid fire questions that I have that are some of my favorites. It's been awesome talking to you. So I'm super curious to see what you have to say about these right ones. on. So the first one is for you personally, what would you say is your biggest fear? Um, not maximizing my potential that I probably put too much on myself, but falling short of that. In what sense? Like in business sense or in what? I think both in business and in personal. I think I have a unique a mind in a sense to understand the opportunity, whether it's in family or in business. And I think my greatest fear is just not maximizing that potential of kind of the the mindset that, I, that I've been given. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that for sure. Mm-hmm. The next question is, what is your personal definition of failure? Quitting. Quitters quit. So obviously... Quitting is bad, but at yeah. the same time, is there a certain point where it's okay to stop that idea because it's just yeah. not working? Yeah. Where does that fall for you? Man, you got to trust your gut. That's going to be all over the scale for whoever it is. It's just like the stock market, right? You put money in, you really don't lose money until you take it out, yeah. right? If you if it's up and you put it in and then it goes way down and you take it out, boom, that's when you lost your money. Sometimes that's the best thing you should you should do and listen to the people around you. Uh, listen to the people that have seen around the corner. They obviously have a lot of wisdom. It takes a little bit of pride to be an entrepreneur. You got to believe in yourself, but just uh, make sure that you're also uh, humble enough to listen to others. And sometimes yelling, quitting and getting out at the right time, even if it's a loss is the right thing to do before you lose more or waste more time. Oftentimes though, if you believe in it and you're willing to pivot and fight for it, it's really about just staying in the market. And even if you failed along the way and, and you're the stock price you've invested in or the company that you started is just seems like it's going downhill. If you keep on grinding, it'll go up, right? In the yoga market, we made a couple hundred grand. We hadn't made any profit on that. Like we, we paid it all out to influencers and try and trying to grow this team, but we were willing to stay in the game and then we pivoted to back pain and that's what, that's what really made things take off. I don't know how much of a lightning round answer is kind of long winded. I loved it. I wanted to talk, talk about you now as, a business owner is as a leader of the company. Yeah. It's super important to be on your A game and just be able to be someone that can guide the company to great success. So what is one thing that you do, one habit that you have that helps contribute to building yourself up and preparing for that? I meet with a lot of people. I always want to see what's around the corner. I'm 28. I've got some great experience under my belt, but there are so many things that I don't know. And that curiosity is what gets me up in the morning. I think I, I think I read 60 books a year and and I try to meet with a ton of people that I've seen around the corner just because I might be 28 and have the mindset of a 35-year-old entrepreneur, but can I have the mind of, mindset of a 45-year-old entrepreneur that's really seen around more corners? Cool. So I like that. Um, so for this one is from you for our audience now. Okay. What is one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who 
is hesitant to start a business or to someone who is struggling after first getting their business started and hasn't quite seen any success yet. Okay, so the the biggest thing that I see that prevents people from either starting the business or they're struggling early on is they're paying to they're paying attention to the wrong things. My biggest piece of advice is launch imperfect products. When we started selling this piece of sewer pipe, it was literally a cut up piece of sewer pipe with some smoothed out edges, no sticker, no logo, no branded shipping box. You know, the it, if we needed a bigger box to ship more units, we go to Walmart and it was like a Walmart box we were shipping to customers. We didn't care. So launching perfect products. You might be wasting your time on focusing on beautifying a skunk. That's never going to work out. Maybe yeah. not, but see if your skunk sells. If it sells, then boom, all of a sudden everyone thinks it's a pony. <laughs> so um, just don't waste your time making something pretty that the most important thing isn't proven, which is sales. I like that. And then you talked about reading and how you're a big reader. You read a lot of books. What would you say is your favorite book and why? Boys in the Boat is probably one of my favorites. Never heard of that one. It's a great book. Um, It's about uh, in the 1930s, there's a rowing team from Washington, University of Washington that went on to win the Olympics. Anyway, super inspirational. That's a great one. Cool. But I got a whole list. So (laughs) if you want more, let me know. Yes, I will need some personally. And then this one is just something that I've started asking everyone on my on the podcast because I find it super helpful for me, but also for someone who may be trying to start a business here in the future. Mm-hmm. If you were to go back five years mm-hmm. with the knowledge that you've had that you have now, what would be the first three things that you would do, like right from the beginning, to set yourself up for success? I would push our manufacturing overseas because when we were manufacturing, I was running two businesses. I was running a manufacturing business as well as trying to sell these things online, so a marketing business. At the same time, though, we couldn't have grown as fast as we did that one year uh, if we weren't manufacturing overseas. But if I had the knowledge, I'd figure out how to get a little bit of money and just uh, take on probably a little bit of debt and push manufacturing overseas. The second thing that I would do, I would get more of the right team in place earlier on. And so let's talk about team for a little bit. Yeah. What any a sales role? Okay. Any uh, if we're online digital marketer, someone that knows Facebook, you don't have to hire that person on in house. Uh, you can. And there's a ton of agencies out there, and I have a reference to a, to several people that are good at what they do, and so they'll help you figure out what assets and pictures and videos and stuff you need to create. But they'll be able to prove the product as well, and a lot of times they're on commission, so. So when you get started, you would say just you and then finding like a digital marketer. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Unless you can be that person. I find a lot of young entrepreneurs wanting to put in like 100 hours to figure out Facebook. Why the heck would you do that? <laughs> focus on the business. Don't focus on 100 hours. I've been but maybe, stuck so, with that. No, sorry. I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore because I learned that yeah. it's just not There's my always going to be someone better, you, better than you. Let someone else with $50 million in ad spend under their belt help you out with that, right? And then what would be the last thing? The Number last three, thing? what would you do? I would have more fun. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I work myself pretty hard and I have a very uh, work hard, play hard personality and i'm just now getting more to the play hard i would have more fun i would work just as hard but i would just have more fun doing it cool so i like that yeah thanks again tate for taking the time to be here to talk with me it's been super good i can't wait for our listeners to be able to check this out for those listeners where can they go to find out more about you and about the product and your company 
Cool. So we, you can go to gochirp.com to find out more about the product. Um, me personally, you can follow me on LinkedIn, just under Tate Stock, or on Instagram, Tate S Stock. I just started that account and kind of sharing some of the lessons that I've learned over the last five years. Cool. So love to have you there and uh, shoot me a message and I will get back to you. Awesome. Thanks again. Right on. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Hope you take those tips that Tate gave and put them into practice. And until next week, keep filling your way towards achieving your dreams.